Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The Atlanta Opera is sending love letters to Atlanta. That's a new series of video shorts of favorite songs performed by opera stars in iconic Atlanta settings. Today, we'll hear from Morris Robinson, the Atlanta native and former All-American college football player who has performed on opera's greatest stages, including the Met and La Scala. Morris sings his love letter to Atlanta from the stage of the Fox Theater. Later in the program, he'll tell a moving story behind his choice of venue and the meaning of his song. First, we talk with an author ahead of her virtual event tonight at the Atlanta History Center. Lisa Crossmith has written a new book that will tantalize your senses. Her descriptions of taste, smell, sounds, and visuals are so vivid, you may think you are an unseen visitor within the story rather than a reader of it. The novel is titled This Close to OK, and the author joins us now via Zoom. Lisa Crossmith, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I love it here. <laughs> love having you. The story begins with a dire situation. Please elaborate. So my character Tally encounters a man standing on the edge of a bridge as if he's about to jump. Um, she's on her way home in her car. She's on her way home from the gym after work. And so she immediately pulls over and talks to him and tries to get him to come back to the good side of the bridge. Um, she's a therapist, but not telling him that in case he has an aversion to talk therapy in case um, knowing that information would make him shut down. So um, she talks to him on the bridge and eventually um, convinces him to go for a cup of coffee. She's just doing anything for distraction, anything to keep him from taking his own life. And so, yeah, the story starts there, which is pretty wild, I know, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. And 
Immediately, we learn a lot about Talia. She says to the man, hey, I see you. You don't know me, but I care about you. Mm-hmm. Would you tell us more about Tally? Yeah, I, 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 Tally is a character who's almost a little too emotional, <laughs> almost a little <laughs> too emotional for the world. The world touches her in a, in a lot of different ways. And I, I think a lot of us are like that, or maybe more of us are like that, that we care to admit or that we care to let other people know. Um, she's definitely not a person who would ever just be able to drive past someone who was having any sort of trouble, but especially a big trouble like that. Um, she sat, she's almost like, um, I would say, would sacrifice herself for someone else. Um, and, and that was an amazing character to dig, to dig into because that level of commitment, that level of being able to sacrifice yourself to help someone else is, is not seen everywhere, at least I don't think. We, you, would, you would hope so. And, and that's the sort of, it's the sort of thing that sort of pops up when there's a, a traumatic event or some sort of huge, like a natural, you know, disaster or something like that. You see the helpers, you see the people who, who really step in. Well, that's who Tally is. Um, but she's, she immediately, she, because of her therapy background, she knows that if she opens up to him, it could maybe hopefully help him open up to her. So immediately she starts telling him about her really bad days and she's recently divorced and um, she was unable to have children, but her husband had an affair and got his mistress pregnant. So she tells him that immediately to which makes him sort of be like, Whoa, okay. Now she's telling, you know, it's distracting though, because she's telling him her stuff. Like I know, right. Like life can be really hard sometimes, but let's hang on together. So that's where we meet her. We get to know her. Like you said, like really quickly. (laughs) And after she convinces the man whom we learn, she calls Emmett. Mm -hmm. After she convinces Emmett to abandon his suicide attempt, she takes him for coffee and then back to her house. Mm-hmm. Why did you want Tally's home to be the setting for how the story unfolds? Yeah, so when it comes to Tally's house, it's pretty much a character of its own. Um, she has this really perfect, beautiful home that's filled with soft, comfortable, cozy things, soft blankets and candles and two cats. And it's her safe space from the rest of the world. Um, Especially the fact that she is a therapist and spends all day listening to the worst things that have ever happened to people. She has created a spot where when she comes back there, the outside world stays outside and she can feel safe safe and comfortable there. It's her nest. So, the fact that her house is so important to this, it just made sense in her mind to be like, I can get him there. If I can get him there, I can take care of this. I can save him. He will feel better instantly as soon as he walks through my front door. She knows this in her mind because that's the home that she's created. It's an extension of her heart. It's an extension of these feelings that she feels in the way that she wants to comfort people. And so, yeah, I love spending time in her home. I use so many people write me and they want to go to her house. I want to go to her house I love her house (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I'd instantly feel better I try as much as I can to get my own home to to be that same way and I definitely want to go to Tally's too oh Tally is attuned to vibes and she believes in energy 
How does she glean that Emmett is a nice guy? And where does the lilac puff come in, Lisa? <laughs> yeah, so I, I, what I had to do was deal with the cognitive dissonance um, in a character. I had to deal with the fact that I'm getting a woman to do something that is very, very scary and not at all a thing a woman should do which is bring a strange man back to her home or be alone with a strange man in any, in any way, really. If a woman does not feel comfortable doing that, she of course felt comfortable. And I, need, I knew I needed to explain that to the reader. Um, there are a couple of different ways I did that. On, on, on one hand, I have Tally who's always been attuned to things, but especially after her divorce, it's really sharpened. So I mentioned that a couple of times that, you know, she, Obviously, she's not overly trustful of people. Obviously, because of what happened with her husband, someone she obviously loved and trusted so much and he could betray her in that way, she learned a lot from that. And so I have her talk about she feels can feel the energy from a violent person or she feels like she can taste the energy from someone who's up to no good. And so she uses her senses to see what they come back with when she's around Emmett. And so <laughs> through the course of them like together in her kitchen and they're making dinner, she's like, I have tried to feel this bad energy, this negative, this violent energy from you. And I'm not getting it. You seem like a kitten. It's like a lilac puff. That's what I'm getting back. The reason I picked a lilac puff is just because I love the color lilac. It's my favorite. But a Me puff- too. <laughs> anything purple but lilac most of all I know oh I love it and I was thinking what's like the least scary thing is like a puff (laughs) (laughs) it cannot it literally cannot hurt you in any way it's just a puff there and so I, I use that she refers to it several different times he's got a lilac puff like that's his energy so she's not scared of it in some other situations she may be and has been, but she's not scared of Emmett in that way for as much as she can tell and she trusts her instincts. Hmm. What do we learn about Emmett early on? So early on, we learn that Emmett is from another spot in Kentucky. The story is set in Louisville, but he's from a city that's a few hours away. We learn that he doesn't want to talk about what's going on, which is to be expected. He doesn't know Tally, doesn't really want to talk about it. But we we also learn that he's a good listener. And when she uses her talk therapy tactics on him, he will turn those right back around on her and ask her questions. And he really gets her to open up. And that was an interesting part for me to, to just be able to explore. Um, Tally should really, you know, she is literally in the driver's seat when they're together. And then figuratively she should be you would think in the driver's seat because this is her job whether she's telling him or not but he turns it around on her and gets her to talk and 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 not that many people ask tally how she's how she is doing it's her job um you know literally but also she just takes that role but he's a really good listener and turns it around on you know on her too the story is written from both of their um we get to hear from both of them So when we do get to hear from Emmett, we hear about, he's not going to tell you everything, of course, I keep my secrets, but he lets the reader know that he's hurting 
and there's darkness there. And he's considering hanging on just because Tally stopped and wanted to talk to him. Right now, he's comfortable eating at her home at the beginning. And so it's a slow, slowly reveal of all the secrets that he has. But at first, we, we do know that he has a lot of things going on, a lot of darkness. But through that, he's also getting Tally to spill her own darkness and her secrets, too. Yeah. The story takes place over the course of a long weekend. I had to remind myself of that toward the end of the book, Lisa. Hmm. (laughs) Would you talk about how you provide so much insight into the characters' lives in this short time span? Hmm. Well, it's such an intense situation. I I speak often of um, forced intimacy. So my first novel, Whiskey and Ribbons, um, my characters were snowed in. So all this stuff that they had been avoiding talking about actively and aggressively, you know, avoiding talking about this, they're forced to talk about it because there was nowhere else to go. They were in the same house together. And okay, now we have to talk about it. I do that a lot in my work. So it's like the forced intimacy it brings out more than it normally would. Um, we're, this was an extreme situation. Um, if this gentleman was about to take his own life. So Tally's very easily like, okay, we have to talk about this. Like what, what is going on? Like what, what happened? Like, how can I help? Um, and so having them together in that short, intense amount of time and we're getting both of their inner thoughts I felt like that was the best and easiest way for me to let the reader know what was going on, the things they think about each other that could be wrong and the things that they're getting right about each other, although it hasn't been completely revealed yet. That back and forth like that really, really helps me. And also we meet a lot of Tally's family. She talks about her family. So instantly, like, it's almost like in an instant, they've been old friends. And so using those things, her family, meeting some of those people, taking them back to her house, we're instantly immersed in her world and they're connected really, really quickly in a really special way, which is, it always gets me to the page because I think it's so special and unique. Um, And I love that intimacy between strangers and how people just reaching out in kindness, how it can really change someone's life. Indeed. You reminded me of the snowstorm in whiskey and ribbons in your previous novel and this idea of forced intimacy in this book in this close to okay the rain feels like a character of its own Mm -hmm. would you talk would you talk about the importance of rain this imagery throughout the story yeah, wow. I love how you said that. I, I love the rain. I just love the rain. So it um and especially here in Louisville, that week, like it's like nine times out of ten, it feels like that Halloween weekend is just a wash. <laughs> it seems like it just is always raining. And I, I love that. I want the trick-or-treaters to be able to enjoy themselves, but I do just really love the rain. And so that was an element I just added to like the coziness and the intensity. Um, I turned up the coziness at like as high as it would go because they're dealing with some, such darkness and such so many big emotions, big, heavy emotions that I really dialed 
the coziness up. So what better time to light even more candles and to make cookies and to make another pot of tea because it's just raining so hard and let's not even go out. Let's just stay here and keep talking. Yeah, I just love it. I just love it. So, I mean, there's no, like, there is like, I could talk about like deeper meanings and stuff behind it, but also from the jumping point, I just really love <laughs> Okay. <laughs> no desert landscape for Lisa Cross-Smith. <laughs> Not in the cards. The American writer Henry James was noted for his attention to detail and describing every facet of the setting. You do the same, Lisa. Would you read page 53, um, starting with Emmett splashed his face, and then through the end of the paragraph in italics? Sure. And thank you so much. That's such a high compliment with the Henry James. I'm not quite sure what to do with that but say thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. Um, Emmett splashed his face, wiped it dry on her hanging towel, looked around at the little glass bottles and plastic tubes she had in there. Everything smelled like flowers, a girl garden. The hallway bathroom, two candles, one half full of wax, one with a wick that hasn't been lit. A photo of her and another woman hangs in a white frame next to the light switch, a hook next to the frame holding two wooden necklaces, one beaded one. Pearly white liquid soap in the dispenser, pale blue bath mat, four fat bulbs of white light above her mirror, a postcard of Michelangelo's David tacked next to it. The bathroom door handles are curved silver with curly cues on the ends. Swan's neck faucet, silver. White floor vent, white tile, a full-length mirror on the back of the door a wall outlet with two plugs, one holding an auto nightlight, a small garbage can in the corner next to the toilet, a shower curtain matching the bath mat, a round frosted window fit for a ship. Okay, this is the smallest room in the house. <laughs> and this is your description. I love that you said that. <laughs> well, it's just fantastic. And, and, you know, this is to be found throughout this rich lyrical style. The characters in this Close to OK are very intellectual. They're quite sophisticated in their range of interests from visual art to music and pop culture. Why was that important for you to bring out in this story? When it comes to visual art, I find myself going to visual art so often for inspiration. Um, I have big books of um, work by Van Gogh and, and the other artists I love so much. And, and I just will, like, when I'm just thinking or working on a project, I'll just flip through those books. I just love art, which sounds so plain and normal to say, because it seems like everyone loves art and they should, but I just love art and artists, museums. Um, I love art for art's sake. I love just the idea of painting something or writing something just for the beauty of it. So I'm always, always interested in that. Um, and I give those sorts of things to, to my characters all the time. Um, 
I think it says a lot about, to me, it says a lot about the character that they take the time to experience and enjoy things just for pleasure, just for pleasure's sake. And when it comes to music, yeah, I don't think it'd be possible for me to write characters who didn't love music and have favorite songs. I just use that in the same way, character traits. So there's a part in here where she's searching for a song on the radio and she's like, hey, tell me when to stop. And when they hear Bring It On Home To Me by, by Sam Cooke, they're both like, okay, let's stop here. This is a good one. And I, I did that specifically because I can't even imagine a time and place where someone does not love that song, does not love Sam Cooke's <laughs> voice. <laughs> like, it's a really like a very comforting and oldies have always been comforting like that for me. Like, you know, when I was a little girl riding around with my parents listening to the oldies channel. So I specifically chose an oldie and a goodie and a perfect, perfect song and a perfect voice. And so I'll use things like that. Um, throughout the book just because it's a really easy connection to between characters people don't even have to know each other to stop and be like this painting is beautiful the intimacy of strangers in a museum you can share that sort of thing music and art bring people together whether they even want to be brought together or not and so i you know so i do that and i specifically have tally be you know have postcards tacked around her home and that you know her her stacks of books um, about art and artists and Emmett loves those things too. So it's just another way for them to connect. Hmm. Lisa, did you have personal experience with therapy? In some ways I do. In some ways I don't. And so, yeah, you're the first person to ask me that question in that way. But, I hope, um, I hope <laughs> it wasn't too personal. No, no, not at all. Um, what I usually like to talk about is the fact that I wrote obituaries it was my first job out of college. And we took some grief counseling in order to best work with the people who were coming in. So I worked at the newspaper and people would come in to place memorials for their loved ones. Every now and then someone would bring an obituary down there, although we had to go through the funeral home, but the families were able to come in and place memorials. Mm -hmm. And that part with the grief, because I talk about grief a lot in this book, um, was really helpful when it came to someone coming in who's actively grieving, who brings something special, a picture or a poem or special words they want to place in the newspaper to remember their loved one who has passed and being able to work in that way and actively work with funeral homes and people who were grieving really did help in the therapy that, um, that was required for, for my job for that to actually go to talk to someone who worked in, you know, in the, in the, in the role as a therapist at the, at the newspaper I worked for was really, was really helpful. And also there was a point in time where I was considering becoming a therapist myself. So oh. a lot of the research and training there comes from my own personal experience with that. Because the story clearly attests to the value and importance of psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And these characters learn so much about themselves through the others they encounter and and most of all Tally and Emmett. Mm -hmm. I was hoping you would discuss your author's note 
Do you want to just read it, or would you rather some? Sure, no, no, I would. I would like to read it. Um, I will say before I read it that it was something I was always thinking about as I was writing the book. I was like, I want to make sure that I can put this at the end. Um, yeah, I can't imagine writing this book and not putting this at the end, but this comes at the end of the book. Dear reader, I'm a firm believer in holding fast to good, lovely, beautiful things as much as I can in this world, even when times are hard. I want to comfort my characters when they are sad, depressed, or grieving. I love filling my books with coziness, warm drinks, and sweet conversations, even when I'm making my characters' worlds crumble all around them. In life, I try my best to look for the light and to look for small mercies, even when things are dark and scary. It's important for me to leave this book on that a hopeful note. If you're looking for a sign of hope, a sign of light, a sign to hold fast, please let this be it. New mornings mean new mercies. And if things do get too dark for you, please speak up and reach out for help. You're not alone. You matter. You are so loved. And then after you sign off, there appears at the bottom of the page with the author's note, the number for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's a tremendous service after a very powerful ending, Lisa. Oh, wow. Thank you so very much. Thank you for having me. I love talking to you. <laughs> Author Lisa Cross-Smith discussing her new novel, This Close to OK. She'll be in conversation with journalist Gail O'Neill, for the Atlanta History Center's online author event at 7 p.m. More information will appear on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. The area we know as Southwest Iran was once the heart of ancient Persia. In the 6th century before the Common Era, the Persians created an enormous empire reaching from the Indus Valley to northern Greece and from Central Asia to Egypt, truly a multi-ethnic empire. The High Museum of Art is featuring an exhibition of works displaying the rich artistic traditions of Iranian civilization from the 6th to the 19th century. 
Monica Avnisky is the Curator of Decorative Arts and Design at The High. She's with us now via Zoom. Monica, welcome to City Lights. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here with you, Lois. Thank you. Well, it was such a pleasure to read up about this exhibition, Bestowing Beauty. How did this exhibition come to the high? We have a wonderful relationship with a collector by the name of Hossein Afshar, and their curator of Islamic art um, put on this exhibition, as, as you mentioned, Bestowing Beauty Masterpieces from Persian Lands. And our director, um, Rand Suffolk, thought it would be a great show to bring to Atlanta. And I really see it as part of our broader kind of diversity and inclusion efforts. As you well know, we don't really have, um, not just really, we don't have an Islamic collection at the high. And so it's really nice to be able to show other forms of art making to our Atlanta audiences. Yes, and this is an exhibition of nearly a hundred works. That's a substantial collection. Yes, and it's only a fraction of Mr. Afshar's collection as I understand it. The works on view really range, as you have probably noticed. Um, everything from you know very small works like pen cases and pages of the Quran to extremely large scale um, textiles and kind of everything in between. So there are a lot of works packed into these very small galleries. Oh, I read that Persia was the first empire known to have acknowledged the different religions, languages, and political organizations of its subjects. Is that multifaceted aspect revealed in any of the art that is on display? Yes. You know, I'll just say that, you know, I think people coming into the exhibition may expect to see certain works like pages from the Quran or or works of ceramic, because, of course, these are things that the Iranians were known for. But there were some surprises. And, you know, I'll just say, you know, as one example, um, we have this kind of we have these three paintings from the Qajar period of uh, Iranian beauties. And some of them may be scantily clad. And so this goes to show you that cultures change over time. And um, it, I think it goes back to exactly what you were saying about the Persian culture and how it has adjusted over, over the centuries. Yeah, because I believe in much of Islamic art, the human form is not depicted. So this really was either indicative of a much earlier time, pre-nation, or, as you say, just a very different set of beliefs that changed and became more conservative over the years. Right. And and in the exhibition, is um, because the works really range and Mr. Offshar's collecting um, spans from the 6th through the 19th centuries, there are kind of various moments over time. You know, I'm, I, I'm very excited for, for Atlanta to be able to see these things. Yes, it, gorgeous works. In fact, the exhibition contains some exceptionally beautiful rugs 
elaborate designs. The King Umberto II Polonaise. I'm a textile fanatic, and I think this exhibition has some really, really gorgeous textiles in it. Um, and, but the one that you're speaking of, the Polonaise, yeah, it's so, I mean, the design is uh, kind of curving lines and beautifully colored threads. Um, but I, I love the kind of story behind the carpet and and why these why these carpets really helped uh, Iranian culture. Um, so this the Shah Abbas, who was the Safavid ruler, when these carpets began to be produced, he was the one who really understood the kind of creative potential in these new in in, the, in these kind of carpets because he was the one who moved the the capital to Isfahan, and Isfahan is one, was one of these kind of carpet centrals. So these carpets were really a kind of form of conspicuous consumption. Um, and that's something that I think we can all understand these days. Um, and as you look at the carpet, and you can understand that because the carpet's actually woven with gold and silver, um, in addition to these kind of bright threads. And I love this because, well, number one, you can see how, I mean, you just see, it's just a luxurious object. And it would have been right at home in any Iranian royal's home. But the other super interesting part about these carpets is that they were also made for export to Europe, which is why I think they're super fascinating for contemporary audiences and why this carpet has the name Umberto II, because that it ended up in Umberto II, who was part of the House of Savoy. It ended up in his in, in that kind of kingdom in, in Italy. And so these Polonaise carpets were widely exported in Europe. And I think that is also fascinating because they are found in these European collections more so than they're found in Iran. And I think this is kind of funny because historians believe that the Iranians would have found them a little bit too garish, for, <laughs> right? But, but Europeans, right? I mean, with their kind of golden interiors, these things would have been right at home. Monica Obniski is the High Museum's Curator of Decorative Arts and Design. The exhibition Bestowing Beauty, Masterpieces from Persian Lands, is on view at the high through April 18th. Love may well be the greatest inspiration for personal as well as artistic self-expression. Love Letters to Atlanta is a new video series from the Atlanta Opera featuring the company's ensemble of internationally renowned artists performing their favorite songs in places significant to Atlanta's musical history. One of those illustrious singers, Morris Robinson, is with us now, along with Felipe Barral, the Atlanta Opera's go-to film director and director of photography for the company's digital offerings. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you for having me. How are you doing? Hi, thank you for having us. Oh, doing well and thrilled to be talking with both of you. Morris, I am most grateful that my husband and I were able to attend your final performance of Porgy 
in the Atlanta Opera's production of Gershwin's Porgy and Bess. That was 11 months ago. And your final performance was just before the world shut down for the pandemic. I hope you and your family have been well. You know, it came as a shock to everyone. No one was expecting this to happen. And to be honest with you, no one is really prepared for these types of things. I actually left and went to Dallas Opera to start rehearsals for my first performances of King Filippo and Don Carlo. And I arrived there and they called and said, don't come to rehearsal today. We're gonna get the building cleaned. We think someone's been around, someone that had the virus, which this is all new to all of us. And then the second day they called and said, don't come back today, don't come back today either. And then the third day they said, we're probably not gonna have rehearsal until Monday. And then the fourth day they said, please pack up and go home, we're canceling the season. So it just, it was that sudden and that abrupt, but uh, you know, it's been very interesting. It's been very challenging, but you know, I think we're all making it as best we can. So I'm happy to be on here talking about this with you today, certainly. Yours is the first of the Atlanta Opera's love letters to be released. Would you tell us where you chose to sing and the song you'll perform? The place that was chosen was the Fox Theater, Atlanta's great Fox Theater. It's a historic, iconic site in Atlanta. It is something from my childhood that I remember talking about and passing by all the time with curiosity because it just had all these wonderful lights and it looked so beautiful from the outside. It's one of the first stages I performed on as a kid, about 12 years old. I was in the Sydney Marcus campaign oh show. And I, uh, you remember that? Yeah, I and do. I, <laughs> I would, me and my sisters actually saying it's a hard knock life uh, from Annie. And we came out of trash cans downstage right and it was my first time on stage. I was actually a soprano then. That's how long ago it was. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Oh, that is so hard to imagine. You are the basso profundo of all time. And well, <laughs> once you had a high voice. You know, I actually have a high voice now, but that's a whole different topic to discuss. But I chose that place because of all the nostalgic memories I have there with my family, with my sisters being on that stage. And the one song that I chose to sing has ties to that very show and that very stage, The Impossible Dream from Anna La Mancha. One, because I remember being on stage and that show, that song was the ultimate number, the climax of the show, so to speak. And I remember listening to the baritone scene that and thinking, wow, this is just an amazing song and an amazing voice. And he just stands on stage and commands it and takes control. And I just felt like he was very powerful. I felt like the song was very powerful. So I memorized it from listening to him. And when I auditioned for high school performing arts, with Billy Dinsmore over at Northside, my mother made me audition for him. And that's the song that I chose. Going full circle, I ended up singing that very song at my high school graduation at the Atlanta Civic Center. So there are lots of memories in Atlanta, lots of uh, nostalgia related to that song and my story. And as it was written and as it has developed over my life, it's really an impossible dream. So I felt like it was the most appropriate thing to do. Right to work. 
Each love letter opens with the Atlanta Opera Artistic Director Tomers Volun in conversation with this singer. What does this layer add to the viewer's experience? I think for me, my interpretation of what it adds is that Tomer, because I don't know why he has these instincts, but maybe it's because he's a director. He's a storyteller. And he knew exactly where to go with me. He knew exactly what questions to ask. He knew exactly what buttons to push to bring out the emotional reaction in me. He was very good at this. I was actually in shock of how good he was at, at hosting this. You know, and he has a vision. And I think that his vision of what he wants to present, what he wants to do with the community, with the opera company, connecting it to various communities within our Atlanta metropolitan area. I think he tailors every last discussion to fit into that narrative such that it comes across as very convincing and very authentic. The authenticity comes through in it. So I think that's what he brings to it. And I think that because he's doing it, because he's the visionary, because he's the, the main guy at Atlanta Opera, I think it adds more validity to the, to the story that's being told. What do you think, Flevo? Yeah, I, no, I, I agree with you. And I think also, you know, the whole idea is to, to, to really showcase, you know, not just a song, it's not just a music video, you know, shot in a, in a beautiful location. It's about people and it's about the human connection and it's about knowing the artist beyond the songs as well. And, and Thomas obviously, you know, knows that and understand that. And he has a good way, like you were saying, Maurice, to, to kind of go where you need to go to, to create a space where you can feel safe about talking about multiple things and then express that. Um, so I think the, the layer that we want to bring into that as well is that let us you know, share with you not only the love for the city and the iconic places, but let us show you these great singers, these great people, and, and make a, a human connection through the screen around this beautiful video. Yeah, and Morris, your story is deeply personal and quite emotional. I cannot urge listeners enough to check this out. Felipe, film is your primary medium. Regarding the Atlanta Opera's Love Letters series, how do the singers, as well as their songs, determine what we ultimately see on screen? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. It's in interesting because, you know, obviously knowing ahead of time, we know what is the song and we know who is the singer that is going to be there. And so we can envision how we want to capture this specifically for each song. And in this case, you know, in the first three love letters that we have, we have two of them being filmed at the Fox Theater. So to me, it was very important to not repeat the same thing, the same look. And even though the location is the same, how we can capture it in a way that represents more of the singer and the song into the video. And so when people see both, you know, of these two videos, uh, one with Morris and one with Jamie Barton, uh, at the Fox Theater, you will see that they, are, they look different, even though it's the same location. But the idea was really to bring the meaning of the stories that Maurice is telling, you know, how we can translate that into the way we're going to film this. And, and therefore, you know, when we see Maurice walking through the Fox Theater, you know, and, 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 and talking about your mom, uh, Maurice, and, and talking about, you know, all, all the other things, we wanted to kind of capture it in a very beautiful way. And then when you're on stage and, and we have Rolando Salazar as well, you know, playing the piano with you. And he obviously, you know, is, is, is one of the conductors at, at the opera and pianist. You know, the idea was to really bring you in this intimate setting. And, and I think that that intimacy also is part of something that I was looking for by filming this. Because 
we are in this incredible location that has a lot of meaning for Atlantans, but we're there alone. <laughs> it's just us. There's nobody in the audience. So we have a beautiful setting and nobody's hearing but us. And so we wanted to capture it in an intimate way because we are bringing you the audience through uh, the lens of the camera to be with us in that very special moment where you're alone in the whole theater. And I have to say it attests to the power of Morris's art and your capturing the visual aspect of it, that empty Fox theater and that capacious stage feel intimate while Morris is singing. <laughs> How is that possible? <laughs> um, well, you know, that's the magic of what we do, right? Uh, but I think, I you know, think so. it, uh, the, the important thing, and I remember, you know, and Morris, you know, you were so great when we filmed as well because, you know, I needed to move from places to places within the theater to reset the cameras and be right up there in the last row of the seats or be right in front of the stage. And that takes time, right? But, you know, in order to do it, we were all committed into what we wanted to do and capturing it in this beautiful way and sort of think about how we can do this as well when we are, we, we have the possibility, for instance, to be on stage, to be really close to Morris and to go around Morris and sort of start bringing this character, which is the fox itself, into the equation and how everything is going to look sort of amazing on camera. So I think, you know, the combination of, of really showcasing how far can we, we can be from the stage and we know people are not there with us, so they are far away and that's kind of a metaphor. But then we are really close to Morris and that is also a metaphor that we're bringing the audience with us to be right there. Typically, if you're sitting on the, on the fox or in any theater, you will not be that close to Morris. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> Morris, speaking of not being very close, you are with us now from Munich. At this moment, are you working in Germany? I am, actually. I'm a, I can't talk a lot about the project, but I am shooting a movie over here. Oh, my. It is, <laughs> it's a movie, and uh, it actually is a movie about an opera, but it's not a musical version. There is more acting and not a lot of singing. It's really beautifully done so far. We have been, been doing table readings. I did my one half of an aria in the recording <laughs> studio yesterday. <laughs> so, uh, and, you know, I'm a singer, I'm an, I'm an opera singer. So, you know, we strive for perfection. I, I went in on day two, I was still tired and I sang through the aria. I actually got the translation at the uh, reading, sang through it, went home, lost sleep and called him the next morning and said, can I please come in and re-record the last nine notes? So I spent time doing that, but yeah, I'm here working on a project and shooting a movie and yeah, I'm staying busy. I'm very blessed to have this opportunity to work, especially during the times where, you know, most of our theaters are closed in America. So yeah, that's what I'm doing right now. That, that is, sounds thrilling. Now, is the film in English? Yeah, the film is actually in English, but there's going to be a German overdub with the uh, dialogue. And I believe that I'm going to sing the German versions of these arias uh, when the overdub happens for that too. So I'm pretty excited about that. Ooh, I can't wait to hear <laughs> more about this. I'll, I'll just say it's going to be Deutsche Grammophone uh, for, the, for the soundtrack and the movie is The Magic Flute. Oh. That's all I can say. Oh my <laughs> goodness. So yeah. it has been what? 
maybe 45 or more years since Ingmar Bergman's Magic Flute. This, yours will be the 21st century version. Yeah, it's going to be really cool. Yep. Oh, <laughs> Morris yeah. meets yeah. Mozart in Munich. Does in it Munich. get any better? And I used to work for 3Ms. That's a 3M. See, Morris, Munich, and Mozart. So. I'm telling you, there alliteration is always There well. you go. What has been the silver lining in this pandemic in terms of opera and how we experience it online? This is for each of you. In terms of opera, this presentation is is twofold. First, I think that life will find a way to continue, right, regardless of what happens. And I think the way that we present our art right now, the way we communicate is a different way, but it's a way that the art is surviving despite the circumstances. It's proven that it is, it has fortitude and it has will and it has staying power and it's happening even though it's very, very difficult to pull it off. The other part of it is, however, is that in, a, in our best efforts to make sure that it reaches everyone and still thrives and still grows, it makes us even more and more hungry and long even more and more for the real thing in person and live. So I think while we've wet the appetite and, and satisfied the, the desire to a, degree, to a degree, it has only created even more and more of a desire for us to get back on stage and get all of us get a chance to experience that real magic in person right there live and in color. So I think it's that's what I would call the silver lining for it as far as the operatic presentation goes. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think, you know, the silver lining for me as well is to, to really put a light on how the screens really that we're so used to now and we carry with us and we are surrounded ourselves with screens in multiple spaces, how that can be really the window that can connect us in a meaningful, inspiring, you know, and sort of wow kind of uh, way and i think you know it, it, the silver lining for me is that with tomer and the atlanta opera you know we be we have been talking about this creating this kind of content for the last two or three years and all of a sudden you know when you have a pandemic and you cannot perform live you know you can take that opportunity and embrace that opportunity in a more creative way and say now is the time to actually do it we were already capturing operas in beautiful way, you know. I filmed uh, Porgy and Bess at, at the beginning of the year, last year. And so now was a time to really kind of embrace that, try to get the funding for it. And now look at what we're doing with Atlanta Opera. We have a Spotlight Media, which is our OTT streaming service. We have these, we have films, we are doing all of this. And really it's also the opportunity to really create something that is parallel to, to be on stage. And we all hope that people are going to be able to go back to theaters, like Morris is saying, you know, and experience this live because nothing can so, sort of, you know, replace the live experience. But in the meantime, in parallel to that, we can also offer you opera in this other way, in this beautiful cinematic way. And when you look at what can you do when you combine opera and film, and that's what we're trying to do, which is not the traditional way of filming opera, that's when the magic happens and you can now be experiencing opera in a totally different way and be part of the experience as well, where you can choose now to go to a live theater eventually or keep watching all of these things, you know, that are companions to that on your screens from the best seat in your home. <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen, 
This has been a delight, Felipe Barral, Morris Robinson. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it as usual talking with you. Morris Robinson, internationally renowned bass and member of the Atlanta Opera Company Singers. He was joined by filmmaker and director of photography, Felipe Beral. Morris singing The Impossible Dream is part of the new virtual series, Love Letters to Atlanta, streaming now on the Atlanta Opera Spotlight Media. They are free to the world through February 14th. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. And I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wab.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.